A young boy leaves early Sunday morning to begin his paper route. He left with his wagon and his family dog. In less than an hour, though, he would be missing. His wagon and dog were found a mere two blocks from his house. Neighbors report seeing the child speaking to a suspicious-looking man in a blue car shortly before he went missing. What followed was an investigation that opened up a hidden world of organized sex abuse of children throughout the country. Welcome, welcome to the continuing saga that is Killing, Missing, Hidden. Once again, this is your host, Brad, former criminal defense attorney to all the rich and famous stars of the world of meth production in rural Alabama. I hope this podcast finds you well and that you're excited for another listener request. Today's story was recommended to us by listener Simona. She made an excellent recommendation, if I do say so myself. This is a case that is all sorts of cray-cray. If you want to suggest a topic, please do. I can't promise when I'll get to it, but I can promise that I'll put it on my big board that I look at multiple times a week and just sigh over because I don't know what to pick. We also need to celebrate two new members who have joined our exclusive Patreon ranks, Jadina and Blair. Yay! Thank you so much. We love you, mostly in a healthy way. If you want to be the recipient of our kind of healthy love, go to Patreon and look for the KMH podcast. Sign up there. It's well worth your time. Trust me. So this case is considered one of the more notoriously difficult to research ones in the true crime community due to so many conflicting reports and conflicting evidence. At the center of the story is Johnny's mom, and most researchers, journalists, and others debate rather fiercely, if we can even rely on this woman as a credible source for information. So because of this, I'm, as I like to say, standing on the shoulders of giants again, since they have a lot of time and resources to really dig deep into cases like this. I relied on a podcast called Faded Out, and I relied on it a lot. Um, just to give you an idea on how deep they go into this case, they, they cover it in 33 episodes. And we're doing it in one, you know. So if the story kind of strikes a nerve with you, go check out that podcast. Again, Fade It Out. They do interviews with the players. They have access to all sorts of archived records. They have some really good stuff there. Again, Fade It Out. They're not paying me a dime to pimp their show. I'm just saying it was a really good resource. There's also other articles and whatnot I relied on that's in the show notes. But Fade It Out. They, they definitely get the gold star for providing us the most information this week. And I have to give a quick warning, though it may be obvious here. This case does discuss a lot of child abuse and sexual abuse. So if these topics bother you, this, this may be an episode we're skipping. If it's any comfort, we don't get graphic at all on this one. But I know that bothers some folks just to hear about it. So I wanted to give that warning. All right, enough enough of this business stuff. Let's just, let's do story time, okay? Johnny Gosh, a young man all of the age of 12 years old who lived in West Des Moines, Iowa, back in the 1980s. He had a paper route, which is kind of the most wholesome thing ever, right? And on September 5th, 1982, 
Rather than waking his dad to go help him with his route, as Johnny typically would do, he decided, you know what, I'm going to do this one on my own. I'll let dad sleep. So he left with his wagon and his miniature Datsun. It was supposed to be kind of a surprise for his dad by letting him sleep in. I don't think my kids have ever considered the concept of letting dad sleep in. I digress. Now, Johnny makes it out to the drop spot where the Des Moines Register would pass out bundles of papers to the neighborhood kids around 5 in the morning. It was a Sunday, which meant, you know, the paper was bigger and thicker. And so that's why Johnny had his little wagon to tote the papers for him as he walked. So we have this cute kid with his little doggy picking up papers in a red wagon. It's, it's like a scene from a Norman Rockwell painting, right? Well, at the drop point, something kind of strange happened. This car pulled up. It was a blue Ford Fairmont, and it had Nebraska plates. The driver got out, and even though there was multiple kids there, he looked directly at Johnny, asking him how to get to a particular street. Johnny kind of stammered out an answer before this large Hispanic man got back into his vehicle. And when he did, the man turned on the inside dome light three times before pulling away. In retrospect, obviously, this was a signal of sorts. Now, all the kids at the drop spot witnessed this. What no one saw, though, was the second man. So Johnny took his bundle of papers and his little pup and began walking towards his typical route. As he did in the shadows, the second man was bounding through backyards, hiding behind trees, basically stalking Johnny. At what I assume was considered to be the perfect spot, the man jumped out from behind a fence and surprised Johnny just as that same blue Fairmont pulls up with tires squealing. That second man grabs Johnny and forces him into the backseat of the car and gets in with him, shutting the door behind him. And the vehicle just speeds away, blows through a stop sign without slowing down. Johnny's dog and his wagon full of newspapers were left behind, only two blocks from his home. No one was aware of the kidnapping, however, until after 6 a.m., or that's what we're told in the official reports. It wasn't until Johnny's parents began receiving phone calls, kind of complaints from neighbors that, hey, we know your son typically delivers the paper, but we haven't seen him this morning. That's when the red flag first went up. So Johnny's dad, you know, went out to check the neighborhood. He knew Johnny's route, obviously, because he had gone with them multiple times to see what had happened. And within a matter of minutes, he finds the dog in the wagon, like I said, a couple blocks away, and the wagon is still full of newspapers. Well, Johnny's parents immediately called the police after making this discovery. Now, despite the police department being a mere 10 blocks away, officers didn't arrive on the scene for about 45 minutes. In fact, under the policy at this time, Johnny couldn't be considered a missing person until at least 48 hours had elapsed, which we now know is totally asinine, but that's how things worked way back when. Police classified Johnny as a runaway, but slowly accepted this kidnapping theory as they performed their investigation at a very slow and tepid pace. The investigation turned up very little evidence and no real suspects. Now, in fairness to the police, what little slack we need to cut them, 
in the early 1980s, this was a time, you know, where kids would disappear for an entire day. And there's no cell phones or anything like that, right? So it was not unusual for kids to go, quote unquote, missing when they're really just out with their buddies exploring the f- woods behind the house or just hanging out at a friend's house watching TV or whatever. In fact, sometimes these kids wouldn't even tell their parents when they spent the night at other kids' houses. Um, Really, it was considered a little bit of paranoia for a parent to call the police when their child went missing as quickly as Johnny's parents called the police. But then again, kids who abandon everything on the side of the road, including their little dog, generally aren't considered runaways. So you totally understand why Johnny's parents would do that, even under the 1980s lens. During that 45-minute window, you know, when police were just racing to the scene, Johnny's mom, Noreen, she didn't sit on her hands. Noreen was out in the streets playing junior detective, gathering eyewitness statements and all sorts of other evidence. I mean, you could easily argue that she did more in those first 45 minutes than the police have done ever since Johnny went missing. An online user known only as Yellowbag said he was a paperboy at the same time Johnny was kidnapped, and Yellowbag claims that a man in a Ford Fairmont tried to lure him into his vehicle about six months before Johnny went missing. Yellowbag called the police. They never sent anyone over to interview him. In fact, Yellowbag was of the opinion that nobody really wanted to talk to him. And when he tried to contact the police again once Johnny went missing, again, he was ignored and he was left with the impression that the police weren't really investigating this case. Yellowbag was also aware of a man by the name of Wilbur Milhouse, who was the manager of these drop-off points. Now, Yellowbag claims that Milhouse was always asking for the boys to pull down their pants for money. So we get kind of a pervert vibe from him, right? Yellowbag is of the opinion that Millhouse was connected to the man in the Ford Fairmont. Noreen, too, believes that some employee of the newspaper had to be involved in Johnny's disappearance because of the timing. Now, Millhouse was arrested in 1986 for child sexual abuse, the same year all these kidnappings in the Des Moines area stopped. Did did I not mention that? Yet Johnny was one of at least three kids that had been kidnapped from the area while delivering newspapers or walking to a friend's house. Eugene Martin and Mark Allen are the other two that we know of, both of whom were 13 when abducted. When police searched Melhouse's house, that's a little hard to say actually, after uh, he was arrested and charged with this, they found kind of a handwritten spreadsheet that had the names and addresses of something like 2,000 kids throughout the Des Moines area. Creepy, right? So it's been, what, around 40 years, and Johnny's case remains open and unsolved. And the investigation into his disappearance has been a bit of a nonstop full-throttle roller coaster ride. So let's start with the popular kids, the popular theory. Most of the true crime community seems to believe that Johnny was kidnapped for the purpose of being sold into a child prostitution ring. Uh, 
I know that sounds like a heck of a theory, but there's somewhere between some and lots of factors and evidence that support the speculation. And the theory first surfaced, not thanks to the police or anyone official, but thanks to a man named Paul Benaki. So let's talk about Paul for a little bit, shall we? Benaki was discovered as a potential person of interest in this case when a private investigator hired by the Gosh family interviewed a neighbor. See, the police had been rather lax about talking to neighbors. So this PI was interviewing everybody in the area. He said he was focusing on folks that the police had missed, but for all we know, that could have been all of the neighbors. Regardless, the, this neighbor um, told the PI that he called the police the day Johnny went mini, missing because he saw Johnny getting abducted. And this new wrinkle the neighbor brings to the story is that he claims there was a third person involved. There was the driver, the Hispanic dude. There's the man on foot. But there was a third person sitting inside that car who the second person shoved Johnny into. That third person, you know, held Johnny down while the second person got into the car. Apparently, that neighbor's description and memory was so good that the PI was somehow able to find this third man just from the description, which to me is insane and makes me think this PI was like some witch doctor or something crazy, right? The dude that was described was an inmate by the name of Paul Benaki, of course, because we're talking about him, right? Benaki was in child abuse, in prison for child abuse at the time, shockingly, right? But fortunately, he was willing to talk to the PI. And Benaki was just very open about his involvement in the sex ring that nobody knew about. He also was very open about abducting Johnny. He claimed that Benaki himself was kidnapped as a boy and served in the same sex trafficking operation until he got to be too old to be useful as a child prostitute. So they kind of put him on abduction jobs. When Johnny was abducted, Benaki claimed he remembered and that his role in that abduction was to, when Johnny got shoved into the car, he grabbed him, stuck him with a syringe of some sort of medicine that drugged him and knocked him out. And he was, the look of this third man obviously matched exactly what the neighbor described. And the events went down. The way Benaki described the events was exactly how the neighbor described the events. So, arguably, Benaki on his on the face on the surface appears to be a pretty reliable witness, and he was found in 1989. So this was seven years after the event happened, and since 1989, he has never once wavered or changed any details from that initial interview with the PI. Noreen insisted on speaking to this dude. And when he, she met with Benaki, he just sobbed and boohooed and cried. He said he was so sorry for what happened. He hates himself for being involved in it. But the dude kept the story the same. It never wavered. Benaki identified the Hispanic man the kids had described. He only knew his first name, Emilio. And he was considered an enforcer in the prostitution ring. Now, Noreen, for what it's worth, believes Benaki's story totally. When Johnny's story was broadcast on the popular crime show America's Most Wanted, 
But Aki agreed to work with the, the crew and the production company. And in fact, he took the producers and the crew out to this house in Colorado. Why did they make a trip to Colorado? Because this is where Benaki claims he and other children were held while part of the string. This house that he takes them to is on a ranch, and it's way back where you just, I mean, you cannot see this house unless you know that you're looking for it. And when you get to the house, one of the first things you notice is it has an unusual marking on the front door, which is important in a little bit. And Benaki said, you know, the house, if you walk through it, it's normal, looks like a nice ranch house for Colorado. But he said the kids were kept hidden in the sub-basement so that if the police or anyone else ever showed up unexpectedly, they wouldn't be able to find them. And, you know, of course, the crew and the producers were like, well, show us where the sub-basement is. He's like, okay, cool. He walks around to the side of the house, kicks around some dirt, leaves and stuff, and there's a grate there. He pulls up the grate, and there's stairs that lead down to this concrete bunker-looking thing. And in this basement, as he called it, there's just these pipes running all along the walls, just these steel pipes. And he said that's where the children would be handcuffed. And then if you look carefully, the producer said you could see initials and names carved into the wall. Now, the house was run by someone known to Benaki only as the colonel, who has potentially now been identified as Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino. Aquino is a former Army intelligence officer. He was very smart. He was very good at his job, and he rose in ranks pretty quickly. He also, and this is very strange, but he was a devout member of some satanic order and had a falling out with the head honcho in charge. I guess they'd call it the head priest and decide, you know what? I'm going to found my own satanic order because I guess that's what you do in that world. And he created the Temple of Set, which is now apparently the largest satanic sect in America. Aquino actually has appeared on TV admitting all this. He went on Oprah and said, you know, this is all true. He defended his satanic beliefs. He told them, you know, told Oprah, look, Army knows about it. They're cool with it. They treat it just like if I was uh, Islamic or Buddhist or something like that, which just strikes me as odd. I can't believe the Army would allow somebody who is that into Satanism to... A, be an intelligence officer, and B, promote him so quickly. Now, the colonel, again, presumably Aquino, would buy children and then house them in his, as his private stash where, you know, they were kept in that basement. Benaki claims that he was purchased by the colonel for $15,000. And Benaki claims the colonel also bought Johnny about two weeks after the abduction of Johnny. So that marking on the front door of the building that I mentioned, that was important because Benaki claimed that all the children who were brought to that ranch were branded with that mark. And while that seems a little suspicious at first, producers for America's Most Wanted said after the episode aired, they got dozens of calls 
for men who said, I have that same brand. He's telling the truth. So, you know, the producers and the powers that be at America's Most Wanted are kind of excited because they're like, we just uncovered some huge, huge evidence here of this child sex ring. And it's implicating this army intelligence officer. We've got, you know, places where the kids were being held. We've even got where they scratched your little initials into the wall. This is amazing. But there was a problem. And the problem was the property was not owned in Aquino's name. It was actually owned in the name of a fella who was a local corrections officer. But no one could find the guy. The PI that Noreen had hired never found him. America's Most Wanted, their producers, their team, they looked, they hired program investigators. Nobody could find this correctional officer anywhere. He, it's like he never existed or he disappeared. Now, Benaki claims that he told his attorneys he had kidnapped Johnny and he could help solve the case, but he was ignored when he was being charged with those sex abuse charges. And the reason he was ignored is because Benaki has a history of lying and suffers from multiple personality disorder. Because of this and because of the time period everything's taking place in, Benaki was just never considered credible with his story about Johnny. But again, these producers are America's Most Wanted totally bought into it. And they were pushing as far as they could to have some investigation opened up. But again, all they had was some property held by some random guy in the middle of Colorado that had initials scratched into the wall of a hidden basement. They couldn't connect this property with the colonel and they couldn't connect this property with any sort of child abuse. It was just an oddity, but it fits Benaki's story perfectly. And in addition, investigators found that Benaki knew things about Johnny's abduction that he shouldn't know unless he was involved. So the PI that Noreen hired, you know, was so excited. He had all this great information. He put together his report. He gave it to Noreen, and Noreen immediately took it down to the local police, met with the lead detective on Johnny's case, and was like, look at all this great stuff I found. This is going to help so much. And when she gave it to him, he started to read it, and he handed it back. He said, I'm not taking it. He said, in fact, you should take that report and burn it. That information had to remain buried, the detective said. So that's not creepy at all, right? So, all right, we keep kind of dancing around Benaki's story. Let's, let's get through that, okay? So he says that shortly after kidnapping Johnny, the men... Again, they flew through the stop sign. They got the heck out of town as quick as they could. And on the outskirts of town, they abandoned the Ford Fairmont for a nondescript van. To the best of my knowledge, that Fairmount was never found, but it easily could have been picked up by a fourth member of the team and driven elsewhere, away from where they were going. So the three men take Johnny in this nondescript van to Sioux City, Iowa. And... They get to some location there, some sort of building in Sioux City. They pull Johnny out, and immediately he's forced to perform his first sexual act on camera in a room full of strangers with Paul Benaki himself. So 
it's abduction, sexual abuse, wham, bam, right back to back. They immediately start trying to break Johnny down. Like I mentioned, two weeks later, Johnny leaves that building because he's bought by the colonel for the sum of $35,000. And it seems clear, looking back from the initial story with the Emilio tapping his dome light three times and the second man kind of stalking him. Johnny was specifically targeted for abduction. And Benaki says, oh, yeah, no, we were told the, what to look for. Find a child that meets this description. And Johnny matched it to a T. So that's who we that's who we went after. For what it's worth, Noreen hired a second PI to work on this case. And this dude's name was Sam Soda, which sounds like a cartoon character's name. And he seems like a bit of a cartoon character. Soda was kind of well known in the Midwest region uh, for an expert on child pornography because he was like this advocate in raising awareness about child pornography. He also worked as a PI, uh, but he was really well known for holding these conferences where, you know, local law enforcement, state law enforcement detectives, uh, computer experts, things like that would be sent to to learn about how child pornography is made and distributed the, you know, how it's hidden, things like that. Now, what, one thing that's odd that I saw noted in a few stories is while people believe Sam Soda and considered him an expert on this topic, the one question he could not or would not answer is, where did you get all these child pornography images? Because he would show them during his presentation. He had no scruples about showing child pornography to rooms full of people. They never answered that question. Um, for what it's worth, a few years later, his reputation, such as it was, took a pretty serious hit when he ran for public office and fabricated a military career that he never had. He claimed he won, I think it was two Purple Hearts, got two Bronze Stars, some other commendations and whatnot, and yeah, that, none of that was true. So, you know, in case you can't tell, I, I'm not on the soda train in this story. Noreen was, though. She bought everything he had to say, but I don't really know what he added to the story. There's not much about his findings that I could discover. While all this is going on, while America's Most Wanted is doing their investigation, while Soda's doing his investigation, Noreen's kind of doing her own work. What she's doing is she's making the talk show rounds and being interviewed by their news sources. She's, she's focusing on keeping her son's name in the press so his case doesn't go cold. She was traveling so much and doing such a good job at this, at trying to expose the sex ring that she believed was going on in uh, Iowa, Nebraska, Colorado, all these areas, that police actually one day showed up at her door and said, hey, we got to talk. And so they bring her down to the station. They say, look, what you're doing is fine. It's great. Um, public should know what happened to Johnny. They should be aware, keep their kids safe and all that mess. But we need to let you know that we've received information from a criminal informant that some folks have put out a hit on you because you're making too much noise. And you're going to get a call sometime within the next couple months with someone who's going to claim to have knowledge about where Johnny is, but they're going to insist that you come to where they are. 
and they're going to, you know, have a plane waiting for you. They're going to rent you a car. They'll get you a hotel room, the whole nine yards. But you can't go because if you go, you won't come back. So this shook up Noreen as it would shake up me. Um, but she kept doing her thing. Uh, but then she, she didn't leave the state. Everything she did from this point forward was solely from home, you know. When one day she gets a phone call about two weeks after she met with the police. And it was from this man who said he couldn't identify himself. He lived in Oklahoma, but he had seen Johnny. He knew where Johnny was. He just needed her to come there because if he left to come to her, it would look suspicious. Johnny may get moved. Don't worry about anything. I'll pay for your plane ride. I'll rent you a car. I'll even get you a hotel room over here. Just need you to come to me. Well, of course, Noreen didn't go. She told the police about it. They were like, yep, this is our guy. They actually sent a female officer who kind of sort of resembled Noreen to try to see if they couldn't, working with local officials out in Oklahoma to see if they couldn't catch whoever was doing this. But that didn't go anywhere, and the man never called Noreen again, asking why she didn't show. Okay, we're going to seemingly veer off course a little bit, but we're really not. So indulge me for a bit. Another scandal was brewing while Noreen was out talking about Johnny and raising awareness about his case and all that. In June of 1988, something known as the Franklin Child Prostitute Ring in Omaha, Nebraska, became the center of a media tornado. It centered on the Franklin Community Federal Credit Union, more specifically the manager of the credit union, a fellow by the name of Lawrence King. Now, Lawrence King was a somebody. He was involved in politics and was considered a rising star in the Republican Party. And he had many connections and many important friends, but the accusations were he would use the local boys' town of Nebraska as a source of young male prostitutes for sex parties he would throw for his powerful friends. Now, he worked with the boys' town. He was a big supporter of it. But, of course, he said, this is just total crap. Now, what's kind of chilling about the scandal is it claims that this child prostitution ring was created exclusively for the desires of powerful men in America. Local politicians, state politicians, businessmen, millionaires. We even have federal officials in Washington, D.C. who allegedly were on the client list of this organization. And a lot of these clients were recruited to these parties, and they were done so so that others who were involved with these parties could get blackmail material on them. So they would go from public servant to puppets. There was also lots of free drugs there. Cocaine was apparently everywhere. And so it was a major draw to be invited to these parties because you'd be rubbing elbows with politicians, billionaires. You'd have free drugs. And if you were down with it, there were sex slaves for you to enjoy. If a party goer ever had a special request, King would make sure it was fulfilled. 
If he couldn't find a suitable boy from his local supply, he would secure one by any means necessary. And that's where the colonel came in. He was always willing to lend from his supply of boys, in exchange for an invitation to the party, of course. In extreme situations where King couldn't find a boy himself and the colonel didn't have one matching what the client wanted, King would hire recruiters like Banaki's crew to send to go out and find what was needed. Now, Badaki said he was sent out on a regular basis, and it was always to find boys between the ages of 8 and 13 that met specific physical criteria. And whenever he succeeded in this, part of his payment was he would be allowed to attend King's parties. Now, these sex parties were not like the wholesome swinger parties we all think of. Okay, we don't all think of that, but some of you do, and if you're one who did, you should be blushing right now. Shame on you. Now, these, these should be described as rape parties. Um, horrible things were done to these kids, allegedly. Benaki claims he was a survivor of the parties, and he said oftentimes he and other boys would just be totally defeated after one of these nights. In an effort to placate the abused boys, they were given unique experiences such as private tours of the White House and other government and military buildings, which, of course, totally makes up for the abuse and broken bones and all that, right? Now, there's this guy by the name of Troy Bonner, and he's an author. And he actually wrote a book on this child sex ring, and it's called The Franklin Scandal. You can find it on Amazon. Bonner died under really odd circumstances shortly after his book was published. See, he ran to a psychiatric hospital and he said, I see people everywhere trying to kill me. I don't know if it's real or not. Please help me. So he kind of checked himself in and they gave him a room and some meds to help him calm him down and all that. They go check on the next morning. He's dead. He's not in his bed. He's sitting in a chair with his head drooped over and blood dripping from his nose and mouth. The cause of his death was never publicly released. There, there's conflicting reports on this. There's lots of sources that say no official investigation was ever made into these abuse allegations, but I think there actually was. I think there was, in fact a state investigation and a federal investigation, and I'll mention why in a moment. But because it, the public was of the opinion that nothing was being done to look into this, the Nebraska legislature actually intervened, and they created a committee solely for investigating King and what he was doing. And when they tried to dig into it, every time they would run into some sort of brick wall or some sort of shadowy figure who said, hey, you, uh, you need to chill out on this investigation. Ultimately, they made no meaningful progress. The reason I think there were actual investigations into this is because some of the people who claimed to have been abused actually went to jail for perjury because investigators claimed they were lying and trying to set up King. There is... So much to this Franklin child prostitution ring story that it deserves its own episode. But 
the reason I'm mentioning it here is because we have what, as clear as we can in this case, a connection between the colonel and these sex parties, and we have a connection between Johnny being abducted and being sold to the colonel. So it's possible that Johnny attended some of these parties. Now, there were little blips that would occur while Johnny was missing that would give Noreen hope that he was still alive. For example, three years after he went missing, so sometime around 1985, somebody was given a dollar bill. And on the dollar bill was a handwritten message that said, I am still alive with a signature. It was Johnny's signature. Noreen and police sent this dollar bill off to three different handwriting experts. And all three reached the conclusion that it was indeed Johnny's handwriting. Not long after this occurred, a woman in Oklahoma reported that a boy ran up to her gas station saying his name was Johnny and he had been kidnapped. He needed help. Before the woman, of course, she was stunned and kind of froze for a minute. And in that moment, two large men ran up and grabbed the boy, threw him into a car and sped away. So twice here in the mid eighties, we have reports of Johnny trying to get help and failing both times. All right, now let's really try to make your jaw drop, okay? Noreen claims that in March of 1997, shortly after midnight, she got a knock at her door. She normally would ignore such things, but for whatever reason, she woke up, walked down the hall to the front door, heard the banging again. She couldn't see anybody outside the peephole. So she said, who is it? Who's there? And not came again, and she goes, who is it? I'm not opening up the door. And the response she got is, it's me, Mom. It's Johnny. That's right. So she opens the door, and Johnny walks in, and they have their emotional moment. And Johnny's not there alone. He's there with another fellow. He sits down with his mom, and he says, look, I can't stay long. I've got to keep moving because there's folks after me. They're trying to catch me. And, but he sat there long enough to kind of tell his story about what happened. And essentially it was a lot of what we had heard. He said, you know, this dude grabbed me, shoved me into a car. I was drugged. I woke up in this building. You know, I was there for a few weeks. And then I got sent out to this other building a ways away he mentioned the colonel. He knew that he was being sold for $35,000. And, you know, he had just lived his life kind of bouncing around in the sex trade. But one day he and three other boys were able to break free from their guards and stole a car that was running at a gas station. So they just take off running. Once they had traveled some distance, two of the boys said, look, we live close to here. Let us out. We'll go on our own. So they just kind of let him out off the interstate. And then Johnny and his friend, who during this meeting with Noreen never spoke, never said anything. Johnny never introduced him. So we don't know who that kid was. But they just 
drove. And they decided their best chance of remaining hidden was to go to places that they didn't think these powerful people would look, would look. And so they chose to bounce between Native American reservations, which is not easy to do. You can't just walk in there and live. But Johnny claimed, you know, that he was able to get sympathy and hide out in those areas for a month or two at a time. He claims he came to visit Noreen primarily to let her know his story, but also because he said she had seen all the work he had been do she had been doing, and he wanted her to keep doing it because he says there's a whole lot more kids that have been through what I've been through, and it's wrong and it needs to stop. Well, Noreen, like any good mother, is like it's okay. You're here. Look, let's call the cops. Let's get you somewhere safe. You'll have a nice bed. You can rest and all that. And he said, Mom, you don't understand. The police can't protect me. The only thing I can do is run. And, you know, she begged and pleaded, but he was, you know, he said, I, I got to go. I got to go. Um, so Johnny and his mysterious friend left on foot, cutting through some neighborhood uh, houses. Despite this occurring in 1997, Noreen didn't share the story for many years. In fact, it wasn't until she was being, until she was called as a witness in a civil case that was brought against King for the abuse he had allegedly inflicted on all these children, that during her testimony, she was asked, have you ever seen Johnny since he disappeared? And she refused to answer the question, and the judge said, look, you got to, or I've got to find you in contempt, which means you would go to jail. And so she kind of weighed her options for a minute, and she said, yes, I've met with Johnny. And of course, this just freaking blew up. You know, instantly, all the talking heads, why did she wait so long? This has to be a made-up story. A mother wouldn't wait this long to report it, all that all legitimate questions, frankly. But she said the reason she never told anybody about seeing Johnny that March evening is because he begged her not to tell. Because if they knew that he had recently seen his mom, they could narrow down where he was and there'd be a better chance of him getting caught. But she ultimately decided to tell the story because since it had been about 10 years, if I remember correctly, since she saw Johnny... Surely that wouldn't matter anymore. When asked, the local police chief was very skeptical of the story and, in fact, went so far as to say that he had developed the opinion that Noreen liked to fabricate stories. Experts on these child sex abuse rings also don't really buy Noreen's story. They say, look, you know, statistically, it's just not likely that a child would live that long in these circumstances. Once he's outside the prime demographics to make money for organization, he's either going to be sold to a smaller ring or he's going to be disposed of. And they told some stories on the Faded Out podcast about, you know, boys that would be kidnapped in, you know, say Minnesota and then when they got too old, they'd be sold to a ring down in Mexico and then they'd be sold to another ring over in Thailand and things like that. 
until they just no longer had any usefulness. And typically, they were stuck in a situation where they had no money, they had no protection, nowhere to live, no way to get home, and were in an environment where they may not even speak the language. So they don't believe that, you know, Johnny would have made it out. So there's a lot, uh, that's where a lot of experts get into questioning whether or not Noreen's been telling the truth the entire time on her stories of Johnny. In 2006, which happened not long after Noreen spilled the beans on having seen Johnny, she received this anonymous packet that was left at her front door. And when she opened it up inside, it had pictures of children being bound just in their underwear. Um, it had another picture of a fella who looked like he was dead with a rope around his neck. And on at least one of the photos, it looked like one of the boys had a brand on his chest that matched the brand from the colonel's house out in Colorado. So she takes these pictures to the police, of course, and she says, look, that boy right there in the middle, that's Johnny. That's Johnny. I know that is. So, of course, the police look into it, and as they're doing their research, they get this anonymous letter that says, you know, I can't tell you who I am, but somebody's playing a really cruel hoax on Nori. They're saying if she'll just bite at anything because those pictures are from Tampa and they're pictures of boys who are playing a game where they try to see if they can escape from certain knots that they had learned in the Boy Scouts. So the uh, Des Moines police contact the Tampa police to see if this was true. And it was. It absolutely was. Same exact pictures were given to the Tampa police. They investigated it. They found all three boys. All three boys were alive and well. All three boys said, you know, it was something they did with one of the boys' uncles one weekend. And, you know, everything was kosher. Tampa police didn't find anything wrong. Noreen says, that can't be right. I know my Johnny. That's my Johnny there in the middle. For what it's worth, Johnny's father, who's been pretty quiet in this story, he was showing the pictures, and he said none of the kids in any of the pictures looked like Johnny to him. There's been experts that have reviewed the pictures as well, forensic experts, and they too are of the opinion that none of the facial features match what Johnny would have looked at during that time. Now, out of total left field... There was a rumor going that a reporter by the name of Jeff Gannon, who served actually as a White House reporter for Talon News, was actually Johnny Gosh. And it was the story that he had been given this job in exchange for his silence, and people were pointing out how much he looked like Johnny and all this stuff. But reputable journalists were quickly able to determine that this isn't really true. And they kind of inadvertently ruined Jeff Gannon's career because part of their research, they learned that Gannon had actually secretly worked as a gay escort for a while. And also forensic experts again noted that, look, there's just so many differences between the shape of the nose, the shape of the jaw, 
No way this could have been Johnny. And I guess that's going to conclude our ride. As noted earlier, we still don't know where Johnny is. We still don't even know if the boy's alive. But it's a heck of a story. I think we're going to try to do a Patreon episode on the Franklin sex ring because it needs further attention. But I'm scared to release it on our regular feed because it's going to be a nasty case. I'm going to try to break what we've covered down a little bit because that was a lot of information to be shot out at once. Um, And I want to start with Noreen. I really don't know whether or not we can believe this woman. I don't like saying that. I don't want to dump on somebody that's lost their son, right? But she sure is quick to find evidence of Johnny being somewhere when there's really not any evidence of Johnny being there. And that does make me question how reliable her opinions, recollection, and stories truly are. I mean, look, I get if any of my kids went missing, I would grasp at whatever straw I could to find them. I So I'm not throwing mud at this woman. I'm just saying we have to be careful and not just put blind faith into what she says. So specifically, here's what I see as her kind of grasping at straws. She's never questioned Benaki's story. I'm not saying she should, but she's never questioned it. She believes someone at the newspaper was involved in Johnny's abduction. She, reading between the lines a little bit, she seems to believe the story about Johnny being branded. She was willing to testify against King in a lawsuit brought by another victim. And I don't really know what her purpose was in doing this unless she just wanted to throw mud at King and continue the story of this ring exists, y'all need to shut it down. You know, Noreen knew that Johnny was one of the kids in those Tampa pictures when nobody else, including Johnny's father, including forensic experts, said that was Johnny. And she failed to disclose that she ever met with Johnny. And I understand why it's just odd. And I admit, look, I'm being picky here. I'm trying not to be unfair. I'm just trying to highlight some of the facts that are most concerning and kind of lead me to believe that Noreen is just too quick to find evidence of Johnny. And in particular, the photograph story bothers me the most because she had met with Johnny in 1997, if she's to be believed. She gets these pictures in 2006 And they're this bombshell piece of evidence for her when really what difference does it make? You know, your son's alive. Why are you, you know, why make those pictures about Johnny? If you want to say, look, here's more evidence of this child sex ring. This is why we have to keep pushing. Awesome. I support that. Even though it may have turned out to be something from down in Tampa that was innocent or strange, her forcing Johnny into the story makes it so difficult to believe. Now, Noreen has actually published a book on her experiences. It was published in the year 2000, and it's called Why Johnny Can't Come Home. Sadly, it's currently out of print, 
And if you look for it on eBay or Amazon or any of those types of websites, the price for the book right now hovers around a hundred bucks. A few years ago, they were going for $300. So that fluctuates a good bit. Needless to say, I have not read it because I'm not spending a hundred dollars on that book. Um, but in it, from what I've read, it allegedly details all the work done by Noreen's PIs, plus all the details of her conversation with Johnny. So there's internet rumors, and they're just rumors, I couldn't confirm them, that the reason why this book is out of print is Noreen got duped into selling the copyright to the book, and because of that, she lacks the authority to have it republished. If you read reviews from people who have allegedly read the book, you instantly get this X-Files vibe going on that there's this massive conspiracy giving the you know impression that the book is very heavy on this idea that the FBI and CIA and other government agencies all conspired to take Johnny. I'd love to read the book. It sounds really juicy, but... At 100 bucks a pop, I don't think I'll ever read it. Naturally, there's a huge debate among those who are passionate about this case as to whether it was possible for Johnny to meet with his mother. Like we talked about, experts in child abductions are pretty uniform in saying, you know, the odds of Johnny being alive in 1997 at the age of 27 are exceptionally remote. You know, that is far, far beyond the age where he would be useful in a prostitution ring. He would have to be like lottery winning statistical anomaly to have been able to meet with Noreen. But that being said, you cannot say it's impossible. If you believe Benaki's story, he survived, right? Plus, you know, he stayed in the business, I guess. Maybe that's why he survived. I mean, he was promoted from prostitute to abductor. Um, And we hear stories of people who are abducted and escape, uh, even years after the fact, right? And so it's not unheard of for this to occur. I would agree with the experts that if you just take a random child and you want to put money down on it, the smart side is betting on they're not going to survive. So, you know, I believe it's highly unlikely that Johnny survived, but I review say it's impossible. This entire saga surrounding Noreen meeting with her son one dark evening seems like a bit too much to me. You know, it's odd that she would continue advocating searching for her son when she knows that he's alive and on the run and trying to stay in hiding. Of course, I can also imagine to some degree, being in her shoes. And if one of my kids said, I got to go, I'm in trouble, you know, I guess I could foresee a situation where I'd go along with it because um, I certainly wouldn't want to put my kids in harm's way. I'm a man that's generally adverse to conspiracy theories in general. I think most of them are just made up and, you know, it's hard to pull off a lot of the conspiracy theories that you hear because people are stupid and greedy and do foolish things. So I can't imagine having dozens of people working on something like this and them all being able to keep their story straight. But regardless, there seems to be some meat on the bone here, right? Let's cut out all the he said, she said parts. Let's just look, 
let's go back to the initial investigation, okay? Police take 45 minutes to arrive on the scene for no good reason. They interview no witnesses for no good reason. They, in, in fact, they're contacted by two witnesses who say, I've got information on Johnny, and they never meet with them. Then they try to paint Noreen as being some sort of pathological liar. It looks a little shady to me. And that's just the local police from the beginning of the investigation. This, this isn't just poor police work to me. This feels like an investigation that had a goal to it, a goal that arguably is nefarious, which makes me think there was some sort of effort to protect those individuals involved in Donnie's abduction. It's far-fetched. I get that. It's far-fetched. But it does answer a lot of the odd questions this case raises. And again, when you've got a business where you're selling children for $35,000 a pop, which is going to be more than a police officer makes in a year, would it really be that difficult to persuade people into thinking that this lady's nuts? And if you agree with me, I'll contribute a little bit of money to your uh, policeman's ball or what have you. Now, let's to look at what are the undisputed facts, at least so far as I can tell. They appeared to me that it's undisputed Johnny was abducted and taken to a slave sex ring, a sex slave ring. No one has presented any evidence that impeaches Benaki's story other than to say, He's got multiple personalities. He's a pathological liar. No one can point to a hole in his story, which is important. Okay? Banaki told a television crew, hey, I know where kids were being held. He takes them to this house in the middle of freaking Colorado, and sure enough, there's this creepy dungeon underneath the house that sure does look like people were chained up there. When... The investigators tried to find out who owned the property. That person could not be found and has never been found. Can't really be confirmed to even have existed. There are no known records that any law enforcement agency ever opened an official investigation into Johnny being abducted. You've got people who claim to have been abducted as part of the Franklin child prostitute ring who went to jail just for making that accusation. And Johnny has never officially been located or found. Those undisputed facts also paint a pretty bad picture. Maybe there's no conspiracy or all that aspect to it, but it does seem like he's kidnapped He's taken into a sex ring, and that's the last we know. We have some ideas where he may have went. Don't know where he is beyond those few locations. Based off of all this, I'm inclined to believe that there's two theories best supported by the evidence we have, and it's kind of up to you to decide which one resonates. First, we can take the approach that, look, everything in the story is probably true. Johnny was abducted, 
He was held in a sex ring. He managed to escape. Went out of his way to contact his mother to let her know that he was still alive. All that's 100% true. Second theory I think you could uh, grasp onto, Johnny was abducted. He was held in a slick slave ring and eventually died in that ring. And Noreen just won't give up the fight, even if it means she's not always rational. So this has been a very long episode. <laughs> I, of course, try to keep it, you know, 30 to 45 minutes. Uh, I think we're going to be over an hour when it's all said and done. So we'll end the story here. I hope this mystery is solved soon. It's been 40 years and it's just too weird to leave unsolved. So I really wish some folks would get out there and get cracking on this one to put it to bed. Thank you again to Simona for suggesting the story. It, it was an excellent suggestion. All right, palate cleanser time. Let's see what we've got this week. You ready? All right. I know we've been through a lot so far. So to add one more loop to the roller coaster, it's tough, but we got to do the palate cleanser, right? All right. So here we go. How does a penguin build its house? How would a penguin build its house? He glues it together. Ah, yeah. He glues it together. If there's a bad penguin joke out in the world, I haven't heard it, okay? I mean, I'm sure that I will eventually as we move through this, but so far, I haven't heard it. Okay, that's it. We're done here. Make sure you check out our Patreon episodes. Please continue to share our stories with your friends, your enemies, your coworkers, your social media contacts, your neighbors, people that you just walk by on the street. It's how we grow, so I just need you to be that raving lunatic that won't shut up about a podcast. Also, I hope by now everyone's checked out that Bad Things of Summer Podfest that we released on February, I'm sorry, July 2nd. It was awesome. Everybody did a kick-butt job in it. It was just fabulous, I thought. So please listen to it if you haven't. If for no other reason, be selfish. You may find a show you like by listening to it. There were seven podcasts involved, seven different stories. It was all, I mean, the number of downloads we had just in the first 24 hours were rather incredible. So I think it's doing its job. All right. Thank you as always for listening. We love you. We love you. We enjoy your visits every week. We hope to see you again next week. You are our heroes. Have an awesome week. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.